So I'll begin reading at verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Our Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, we slip into it because you have been so gracious throughout our worship service, meeting us right where we are. We ask especially now that we might, after hearing your voice in the scriptures, that we might hear your voice uh, in the preaching of the word, only yours, for your glory and for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Every once in a while, I'll look through all of the keys on our key holder at home and find that there are always a number of keys hanging there that we never use. We don't really know what many of them are for, and they just have been collecting dust for years. Well, there is an important set of keys that Jesus has given to his church, and they are not to be left unused, just collecting dust. They are the keys of the kingdom. And they are our focus of what we will look at today. Our goal this morning is twofold. First, to understand the context for the kingdom keys, and then second, to understand what these keys are for in the church today. The immediate context for understanding these kingdom keys is Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after our Lord affirmed that it was his Father in heaven who had revealed this groundbreaking and awesome saving confession to him, Jesus replied to Peter with all of the apostles present with him, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and so on. As you are, I'm sure, aware, this pronouncement of Christ, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, has been grossly misused and misinterpreted in church history, especially in Roman Catholicism. Over the centuries, the Roman Catholic doctrine has identified Peter as the rock 
upon which Christ's church is to be built. Jesus indeed put great emphasis on Peter when he used a wordplay on his name. Jesus had given Peter the Aramaic name of Cephas in John 1, which means rock, and the name Peter in Greek. It comes from Petra, which also means rock. And based on that wordplay, Rome made a gigantic doctrinal stretch and declared that Christ had vested supreme authority in Peter to rule over the church universal. And that Christ also intended for this to be an office of supremacy to continue after Peter in an unbroken line of legitimate successors who stand in the place of Christ over his church. This is the papal system. And to make matters worse, Rome declared that the Pope is infallible. They do not consider him to be sinless, but when he makes official statements about biblical doctrine, specifically when he makes statements about biblical doctrine and moral issues, he is said to be infallible, and therefore the church is infallible. But I find it, I'm sure you will too, quite interesting and no less significant that the very next thing that Matthew records Peter doing after this is rebuking Jesus for saying he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise again on the third day. Peter is supposed to be infallible in matters of doctrine, and yet his rebuke of Christ concerned biblical doctrine of the absolute highest magnitude. In the worst way, he messed up with regard to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that stood for. And so Peter immediately fumbled the doctrinal football. And Christ says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Oh, we better not mess with the cross of Jesus Christ. We better not mess with the person of Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. Get behind me. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, around here, we are very sad when we hear of anyone who leaves the Protestant church for Roman Catholicism. Because their false doctrine is, well, just quite frankly, so easily to expose. All we need to do is consider what Jesus does not say to Peter and their doctrine is exposed. Their false doctrine is exposed. He does not say to Peter that he now has supreme authority over the church universal. He does not say to Peter that this authority should pass from him to others. Nor does he say anything to Peter about infallibility. This 
false doctrine is just another reflection of man's attempt to be like God in the Garden of Eden. I'm infallible. The church is infallible. I'm God, is basically what this false doctrine is saying. It highlights for us man's utter sinfulness and his need for Christ to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die, and to rise again on the third day. And to do it for sinners like you and me in substitution for us, putting our sin to rest so that all we have to do is rest in Him and the sufficiency of what He has done. No one fallen in Adam is infallible, but God has graciously given us His inerrant and infallible word. It stands as our highest authority in the church and is our only rule for faith and life. That's why the job of the elder, the job of the minister, is only and always ministerial and declarative because the word of God stands as our highest authority in the church. Thy word is truth. Sola Scriptura. Well, to finish out the context of the keys, let's consider what Jesus really did mean when he said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We know that he did not mean that Peter would be the first pope, but what did he mean? Well, there's actually a variety, some variety, in the Protestant understanding of this. But the main historical view is that the confession that Peter made that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, is itself that confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Christ's church is made up of all those who hold to the truth of this foundational confession about Jesus. They all confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Indeed, sinners cannot be saved unless their confession of faith acknowledges the deity of Jesus Christ and that God's anointed Son became man to save sinners through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And so every time a sinner joins Peter in confessing who Christ is and rests in his sufficiency alone to save them from their sin, Christ's church is being built. But we need to be careful here. We err if we say that Peter himself is not in any way a rock upon which the church is built, and that the other apostles he rep represents don't also play that foundational role along with him. They do. He is. They are. They do. Ephesians 2, 22, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles with Christ 
being the chief cornerstone. And since Jesus directed all of his comments about the church here to Peter and applied it so creatively and powerfully to his name and his person, I think that we can safely say that Christ did in fact vest Peter with a certain primacy beyond all the other apostles. He did not vest him with papal primacy though, and this vesting had absolutely nothing to do with hierarchy at all. But Christ did, however, at this moment, make Peter a first among equals in the foundational advancement of the church. It would be so easy for us to undermine what God did through the Apostle Peter. He was the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his confession of faith. He was one of the first to witness the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one to whom Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Highlighting the utter importance of the church and the role of the official of the officers in it. He was the first apostle to preach to the Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2, the first apostle to preach to the Samaritans in Acts 8. He was the first apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And in this way, Peter was being used of God to bind on earth what God was binding in heaven. Peter's teachings set the stage for the church's expansion and ministry all the way from Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 15. His epistles also set the stage for, this, for the church's expansion and maturity. And it was his teaching that was the basis of Mark's gospel. And so all this context is important for understanding the keys of the kingdom because the context, the context is all about Jesus and the building up of his church, his glorious church, through strong, confident confessions of faith in him, confessions not wavering. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On earth there is no other like you. And not only is it all about Jesus and the building up of his church, through strong, confident confessions. It's all about Christ establishing the officers of his church in order that they might play a major role in bringing about all that God has purposed for his beloved church through the use of the keys of the kingdom. But before we get to what the kingdom keys are for, let me, let me just say that they are to be used by the officers of Christ's church today and in a qualified sense by the whole body. Even though Christ was mainly speaking to Peter about these kingdom keys in chapter 16, 
In chapter 18, he speaks about them again and extends their use to all the apostles. Then, once new churches began to be established and greatly multiply throughout the Roman Empire, the use of the kingdom keys was passed on to the elders of each particular church. We know this is true because the epistles are filled with examples of the apostles urging the elders of churches to use the keys of the kingdom. And we'll see this in a few minutes. We also know it's true because the ministry outlined for elders in God's word is the same ministry represented by the kingdom keys. So now, I hope we understand a little better the context of the kingdom keys. And so let's move on to our second goal, and that is to understand what the kingdom keys are for in the church today. Well, historically, the Protestant church, and I think rightly, I say bravo to the Protestant church, historically it is taught that there are two keys uh, of the kingdom. The key of preaching the gospel and the key of Christian discipline. Both of these keys, when faithfully used in accordance with God's word, open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers, binding and loosing. That's how important the work we do as ministers and elders is in the church. That is how critically important the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is on earth. Well, opening, closing, I've mentioned, refers to the loosing and binding. Verse 19, Jesus said, I will give you, the officers of the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, that is, opening the door and bringing in someone close, shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, that is, shutting the door, shall be loosed in heaven. Well, that language can be worrisome, worrisome to uh, many people, but I don't think it need be worrisome. It means that while no elder is infallible in their judgment, yet, as elders are faithful to Scripture in the preaching of the gospel, and in their exercise of church discipline, those who are brought into the visible church through saving faith in Jesus are also brought into God's heavenly kingdom. Well, that's an exclamation point on whatever that is. For those listening on audio, I'm waiting for that door to completely close. <laughs> so that language doesn't have to be bothersome. No elders, obviously, are infallible. 
But as we, as elders, are faithful to the word of God in the preaching of the gospel and in Christian discipline, God approves of that in heaven. Jesus never calls the visible church infallible. But when those ministering in the church are faithful to the infallible word, heaven puts its stamp on it. Well, the first key of the kingdom I want to mention is that of church discipline. Real biblical authority is given to the elders of the church to exercise discipline in the church whenever there is extreme unrepentant public immorality or stubborn heretical unbelief. We see an example of the immorality in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 5. A man there was committing gross sexual immorality uh, in, in stubborn impenitence. He refused to repent and the Apostle Paul guided the elders there saying excommunicate him to your, you're to that point now. It's the only way that we will win our brother back. So the elders of the church took the key of discipline and they closed the door of heaven to him. And thankfully, the man repented and he was restored to fellowship. See 2 Corinthians chapter 2. By the way, this is one of the reasons why church membership is not an option. It's the only way that church uh, discipline works is if we have members in the church and it's how the historical church has functioned throughout the ages. That's the whole goal of church discipline. It's restoration. The church took the key and reopened the door to him when he came and, and acknowledged his sin for what it was and he came into the church with an open door and heaven put its stamp of approval on that. Praise God. According to Matthew chapter 18, we're in 16, the whole body is involved in church discipline. I didn't write this down, so let me, I did mark it. Let me just read this to you. The whole body, in this sense, is involved in church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Well, this problem that a church member is having with another one isn't something trivial. It's something... Um, extreme like I uh, described uh, a minute or two earlier and that's why you can bring it this is something very extreme you can bring it to the church and that's where the church picks up on it 
in an official capacity. The elders, the session, pick it up now. It's come that far through the body. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, church leaders, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so, in this sense, the um, whole body is involved. And repentance is so sweet. And being reunited to a brother or sister is so sweet. And that's the whole goal of church discipline. Well, the longer you realize how prone to sin you are, the more you like accountability. As a minister, I'm not even a member here of this church. Well, in my heart I am, and I'm your pastor and all the rest. But the larger Midwest Presbytery, I'm a member of that, and that's so that they can hold me accountable. And so this is a beautiful system. I'm a Presbyterian by conviction. And if you haven't read Thomas Witherow's book, The Apostolic Church, which is it? I, I really um, encourage you to do that. Accountability in the church, uh, actually loving people in the church, instead of just watching them walk out the door, uh, shepherding. This is all part of what it means to love people, and church discipline is no different. Well, the second key of the kingdom is gospel preaching. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in truth, it opens the door of God's kingdom for the repentant to walk through and with true saving faith in Jesus Christ be saved. We see this in the book of Acts when Peter on the day of Pentecost preached Christ crucified and risen again and the gates of heaven opened, actually opened to receive 3,000 repentant souls on that day. With the same key of gospel preaching, the unrepentant are warned of God's wrath and judgment and the door of heaven is shut against them if they are stubborn in their impenitence. Well, when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, Acts 13 tells us that many believed, but some rejected the gospel and stirred up, as a result, persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And these two men of God left Antioch after preaching the gospel powerfully. And as they did so, as a picture of this closing, they shook the dust from their feet because the gospel had been so stubbornly and consistently rejected by many. Yes, this is a picture of loosing or closing the door 
to the unrepentant. If you take the time to read the book of Acts, you will see over and over and over how the key of preaching the gospel, the key of the, key of the preaching of the gospel is there. And the call to repentance and faith opens the door for some and shuts it for others in their impenitence. Wherever the apostles preached, wherever they preached, the same key opened the door for some and shut it for others. Gospel preaching is so powerful. And you don't even have to be a good preacher to do it. You just have to tell the truth. And God amongst us will help us to understand that truth. And what an amazing thing that God has done through the foolishness of preaching. He's made it one of the keys of the kingdom along with church discipline for the officers. He's made it something that we can understand and we don't try to be more than what we're supposed to be as far as scripture goes. That's too much for me to try to keep up with all the changes that are going on uh, year after year and over the decades and over the centuries to keep up with. No, God tells us what the church is supposed to be like. And we, with his help and being faithful, and subject to our higher authority, his infallible word. He's there with us, he's helping us, and he's putting his stamp of approval on what we are doing when we are faithful to his holy word. Oh, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, what, what, what rest? I need some rest. My life is a whirlwind. I need some of that rest. Uh, what, what rest are you talking about? Oh, I'm, uh, you, need, you need a greater rest than that, Brother Kent. The rest that I'm speaking about here is the rest of no longer striving to attain God's merit with your own goodness. It's the rest from sin that has provided you through the redemption of God's Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the door is open. It's wide open right now in the preaching of the gospel for confessions to be made. I haven't thought much about who you are. You are God. You are God's Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And you, as the second person in the Holy Trinity, were sent by your Father to become man in order to do for us and do for what we need to be done in, in, in regard to our sin. Because we ourselves could never even get to first base. He hit a home run. Because the cross of Jesus Christ covers even me. Well, I wore a red shirt today. 
It's the blood of Christ. And it's not merely the blood. The blood signals something much more. The death of this one. And what an open door. And how sad it is to see anyone, anywhere, hear this good gospel message and turn away from it. How sad that is. And to have a door closed. Well, there's always hope. I'm not saying that. But to turn away from this message and to have a door closed in terms of unrepentance, what's with that? He created us. He sustains the world by His power. He governs us. And because we are sinners, He has provided His Son. And through His Son, if there is not an open door there, then where is there an open door? He is the door. He is the door. And we must go through Him. Now children, we're not playing a game here when we come on the Lord's Day to gather with God's people. We're talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about the fact that we need Him as our Savior because we haven't always obeyed mom and dad. All it takes is not obeying mom and dad one time and just one sin keeps us from heaven because God is holy. Children, you need Jesus. We need Jesus. And all of our family and friends need Jesus. And everybody who's walked past that window this morning needs Jesus Christ. And they're passing by the kingdom of God. And so, what a glorious thing, though, to see you week after week understanding that this is all about Jesus and it's all about His church. What we think about his church reflects what we think about the gospel and what we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's your confession like today? Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you for how that you have sustained your church throughout the centuries. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. We make that confession. We join with Peter. And we pray, Lord, that we might be your servants in this world that is so lost and so dead in sin and trespasses. And may you do glorious things and open doors around here that we would never have dreamed would open. Open doors on all, for all those who are on our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.